Today's episode is brought to you by Shaq's Spindle Company. Shaq's Spindle Company has been manufacturing hand-weaving looms and spinning wheels in Boulder, Colorado since 1969. Shaq products are beautifully crafted tools designed with the craftsperson in mind. Sign up for their monthly newsletter at shackedspindle.com for free patterns, product updates, and Shacked news. Thank you so much, Shack Spindle Company. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 228 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about knitwear design with my guest, Andrea Mowry. Andrea was lucky enough to learn how to knit as a child from her grandma, Ginny. By her late teens, guided by the wisdom of the great Elizabeth Zimmerman and her many books, she began trying to work out her own patterns. After leaving her life as a pastry chef to start a family with her husband, her hands found the necessary freedom to begin creating with fiber instead of flour. She focuses on designing knits to fit the modern wardrobe, fun to knit and easy to wear with clear directions for every level of knitter. She believes in enjoying every stitch and wearing at least one hand knit every day. Andrea has a great love for indulging in new techniques and skills and then sharing them with other knitters through her patterns and her workshops. Her goal is to leave knitters feeling empowered and inspired and wrapped up in their own beautiful knits. If she's not knitting, you can probably find her spinning, sewing, weaving, or cooking up something yummy for her family. Andrea Mallory, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And I would love to kind of step back a little bit and go back to, um, you know, your kind of origin story. So I know you were born and raised in Michigan. Um, Where in Michigan? East Lansing. So right near the Capitol. Okay. And what were you like as a child? Were you creative? Were you a maker? Were you into other things? I was. I was really into anything artsy. And I really was into writing for a long time. So I always had a diary and liked to play around. My dad was a pretty amazing poet. So I liked to play around with poetry and writing stories. Um, And I like to try lots of different kinds of crafts and art forms. Although I wasn't really very great at a lot of them when I think back on my childhood attempts. Um, I didn't have a lot of guidance. So I just kind of would try things out. But yeah, anything that had to do with puffy paint, uh, paint, glitter, all that, I was very into and finally learned how to knit when I was like eight or nine by my grandma. So that opened up another kind of new world for me. And was she your mother's father or mother's mother or your father's mother? My mother's mother. Okay. And had she taught your mother or no? No. So that's kind of the interesting thing is out of everybody in our family, she had 11 grandkids and four children herself. And I'm the only one she taught how to knit. And I actually asked her after I had started my business and everything like, grandma, what made you teach me how to knit? And she was just like, to be honest, I don't even remember. I don't know. I don't know if I did. They just saw I had a crafty tendency. Um, But I thanked her every day that she was still here 
for teaching me because I don't know if that seed hadn't been planted. I don't know if I would have found my way there. So yeah. I was very grateful to her for. And do, you, do you remember your first project? Yeah, it was. I even remember the color, you know, it was very squeaky acrylic yarn that was gray and pink variegated. And I remember I had my metal needles that were, I think they were purple. And I, she cast on for me and she only taught me the knit stitch. And I knit what was going to be a blanket for my teddy bear. And she never taught me how to bind off. So that square of knitting sat in my junk drawer in my dresser throughout my childhood. That's <laughs> and so that's funny. Really all I ever did. But again, she was like, she planted that seed. So I refound knitting when I was about 17. Right. Okay. And you said your father was a poet. What did your parents do for work? So my dad was a realtor and my mom actually worked in the medical industry. Um, but my dad always has had a very artistic heart, really big into music, writing, um, acting. And then my mom says she doesn't have an artistic bone in her body. But I think if you look at her garden or anything like or her home, she very much does, just not in the same way that myself and my siblings all actually are quite drawn towards artistic hobbies and things like that. So, mm-hmm. okay, right. And so I know um, you become a pastry chef, a baker at some point mm-hmm. later. So when you're in high school, what did you think you might want to do as a career? Yeah, I wanted to be a ceramicist or a writer. So I was really, really into English. Unfortunately, I was one of the ones who had a college professor who kind of dimmed the the love of a certain thing. Um, so that kind of broke my little writer heart. But I really, really also wanted to be a ceramicist. Um, and just kind of along the way, that dream wasn't fulfilled, but I always had that artistic tendency. You know, in high school, I was in, took all of the English and art classes that I could. Okay. And so when you graduated, what did you go on to do? Did you go to college right away or... I took basics right away at the community college and did not know what I wanted to do. I applied to a couple of universities and got in and just realized I didn't know <laughs> what I wanted to do. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to go take basics and work. And then I actually moved to New Zealand and I lived there for a year. What brought you, to New, Zealand? Just, what brought you to New Zealand? I dated somebody from there. So okay. while I was working, I worked at a restaurant and this person was living in my hometown um, for work and used to come into the restaurant every day for lunch. And so we ended up moving back to New Zealand together where he was from. And I lived there for a year and I actually didn't work a ton while I was living there uh, as we were going through different residency processes and everything. And so that's actually when I had the time to kind of really dive back into knitting. And then I started blogging and there wasn't a, this was pre-Ravelry. So there wasn't a ton of knitting resources out there. So I had my collection of Elizabeth Zimmerman books and a couple others. And so I kind of had to make up what, if I wanted something that wasn't in those books, I kind of had to riff on the patterns and stuff. So that's actually where I really started getting back into knitting. Um, But I lived there for about a year and I moved home and just kind of was like, what am I going to do with my life? And what's funny is I ended up moving to Austin, Texas, where my best friend was living and I had to get a job. And I went and I applied at a little tea shop and they ended up being too far away, but they helped me get another job. And they said the reason they wanted to help me is because on my resume, I said I was a knitter. 
And they were like, we just love that you included that in your list of talents. <laughs> and so they helped get me a job at a bakery that was closer to where I lived. And that led into baking and becoming a pastry chef. Right. Okay. And that's like a very hands-on, um, yeah. you know, career. And it also has a lot of technical aspects to it. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of exacting um, proportions and temperatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also very creative, you know, so it's got a lot of similarities. Do you, do you see those yeah. to what you do now? 100%. I mean, writing a knitting pattern is so similar to writing a recipe. So I think that's actually what kind of gave me a little leg up once I started writing patterns is I was so used to writing recipes that I could translate that quite well and wanting to write something in a way that people could follow it. Um, and yeah, having that tactile hands-on kind of being able to visualize something before it exists, which can be really challenging. And there, there's other realms where I cannot do that. If somebody tells me about the house they're building, I'm like, yeah, I just can't picture that, <laughs> you know, but for cakes and knitwear, I'm like, oh yeah, I got that. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the things that people might not understand or realize about pastry chef as a career or about baking as a career, some things that, you know, you as a person on the, who had an inside view of the, of that career kind of understands in a way that maybe the average consumer doesn't. Um, I think how much math is involved in both, (laughs) you know, I think, I think when people picture my career now as a knitting pattern designer, they just picture a lot of beautiful fall Instagram photos of somebody knitting cozy by a fire when it's quite a bit of computer work and spreadsheets, uh, trying to figure out sizing and all of that stuff. Um, But one interesting similarity about both, one is the trying to find the right words of how to say this, like your spatial awareness. So again, trying to picture how something will be once it's completed. So like when you decorate a cake and you have to write a message on top of that cake, mm-hmm. being able to look at it and know exactly where to place those words. Where to start, right, yeah. Yes, so that it mm-hmm. all ends up even. Right. And the same with trying to put, if you're going to put different motifs or color work or texture into a knit item, trying to make it look balanced or knowing how colors might interact together. So, okay. So you were working as a baker and at that point was knitting kind of on the side again, because you Mm -hmm. were very busy. I'm assuming, I know you have to wake up early. I don't know if you did for your job really early in the morning in order to get everything ready. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, and so knitting kind of went by the wayside for a little while and what made you decide to kind of leave that um, sector and do something different? Yeah. So, um, basically I got pregnant with my first child. My husband and I got married. And at the time I was a pastry chef at my friend's restaurant and, I ended up, we knew we, if we could make it work financially, we really wanted one of us to be home with our kids because we knew we weren't making, and we were basically making just enough money with like my um, income to basically pay for daycare or something like that. So I was really working to then have somebody else kind of raise my kids. So we were like, well, does this make sense to have me work just to pay for daycare? Like I wasn't making enough otherwise. So we kind of decided, okay, let's see if we can make this work um, on just a single income. And so I left my baking job and I had been working since I was about 13 years old. And it wasn't until I stopped working, I was 30 when I had my daughter, 
that I realized how much of my identity and kind of self-worth was tied up in working. And I didn't anticipate how kind of lonely early motherhood can be. You know, you're home with a baby and I count my lucky stars, but she was a really good sleeper and she slept a lot. (laughs) So I was just kind of home, like twiddling my thumbs, like, what do I do while this baby's sleeping? Um, And again, we were, it was pretty financially tough for us. So I really wanted to keep knitting, especially while she was napping and felt really guilty buying yarn. So that's kind of when I decided, I wonder if I could try to release a knitting pattern and make just enough money to buy yarn and not feel too bad about it. And so that's, was, was Ravelry a thing at that point? I mean, when you were thinking yeah. about really say, okay, so this was after yeah. like 2007, eight, somewhere in there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this was 2014 is when okay, I released my while, first pattern. So, okay. So yeah. it was a while back. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't imagine having done it without Ravelry. I think with, unless you had a really popular blog, getting any visibility, I think would have been pretty hard. So that was really key to it. It also, the way they have it set up kind of, it helps guide you through the process of like, how do I even publish a pattern? You can kind of go through step-by-step of what they need from you to figure that out. So I just was like, okay, I'm just gonna try this and see what happens. I should rewind a little bit and say that when I lived in New Zealand, I actually did try to publish a knitting pattern. I tried to get into a knitting book and failed miserably. <laughs> like, did you did you bad. see like a call for submissions somewhere? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I submitted to a knitting book and I actually had made a really good knitting friend who was in the Netherlands. We were blog buddies. We both had knitting blogs and she got in. Um, which was so exciting for her. And I was just like, okay, maybe this just isn't my calling. Um, But all the, you know, I think there was almost a 10 year difference between when I tried the first time and the second time. And during all those 10 years, even as a baker um, and other jobs I did, I never lost my love of knitting and my desire to want to figure out how can I make this my job? Um, So yeah, I tried again when my daughter was about eight months old and, and, and without a gatekeeper, right. Cause you don't have yeah. to get approved. If you just, you know, right. create a pattern and put it on Ravelry, there's no, yes, yes or no. 100%. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. There's nobody has to say, yes, this is good enough except for the people buying the pattern. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it sounds like you had started blogging as almost like a first um, step into making knitting really kind of part of your identity. And so tell us yeah. about your, your blog early on. Like, how did you decide to start it? And what did you call it? And what were you writing about? Yeah, so I called it I'll Knit If I Want To, which I thought was hilarious at the time. And that's now the name of my little YouTube weekly Q&A podcast I do. So it's still Uh, there. (laughs) Still there. And I think you can still find the old blog, which even talks about my very big failure of trying to become a knitwear designer. There's a sad little post about it. Um. So, you know, it was at the time when everyone was just starting to realize like, oh, I'm just having a computer means I can kind of put a little bit of who I am into the world. So that's right when, you know, that's when MySpace was still a big deal and um, Ravelry hadn't quite started yet. I think they were just about to. So it was like right close to when Ravelry was getting going. So before Ravelry, that's really how I felt like, at least in my experience, how 
us crafters kind of kept up with each other. Like everyone had their blog role and you would share other blogs you loved. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I remember that was what I did instead of watching TV is I had my whole blog role and I would go through and read all my favorite knitting blogs. And I loved it. All of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm not alone. There's so many other knitters out there making things. So I would just, you know try to find creative ways to post pictures of yarn, which were really bad. I remember one time like setting it in a tree. Like, how do you take a picture of yarn? <laughs> it's not be pretty. And I just wasn't, yeah, it took a little learning curve there. But yeah, so I would post silly stories. Again, I think the writer in me came out a little bit. It was mostly focused on knitting, but it definitely would talk a lot about cooking. I've always been into cooking there's even a blog post about how much I used to hate running, uh, you know, just silly things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's also, I mean, in my experience, having started a craft blog in 2005, so back in those yeah. early days, yeah. it was also a very good way to learn. Um, I think like you, I had this desire to learn to sew, but yeah. never guidance or really time mm-hmm. to do it home with a baby. And with a blog, it was almost like, oh, wait, now there are people like me who love this and I can learn from them. Like I can ask, or I can read their post or I can find out how to buy the book that they're recommending or whatever it might be and get feedback and actually like learn how to do this. Yes, 100%. That connection. I remember I was even trying to knit something that I was struggling with and another person in that blog role had made it. And I reached out to them, you know, everyone was very generous with sharing information and helping each other and cheering each other on. I mean, again, I made a very good friend who lived in a different country. We sent each other little um, craft boxes. So like she sent me on from the Netherlands. I sent it from New Zealand. It was so fun. I actually kind of missed those good old blog days. I know. Maybe they'll come back. You never know. But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was a special time. Absolutely. Okay. So when you did finally, you know, self-publish a pattern decade later and and feeling a little bit more confident with more information and a little bit of a community developing, what was that first pattern and maybe the second one and how did they do? Yeah. So the first one was, I always mix up, which is the first and the second, but I think my first one was a pair of mittens. And they were just basic pair of mittens that had a colorwork motif. And I remember I actually did a naming contest on for them on Instagram. And I said, if anyone helps me name these, I'll send you the pattern for free. Which I act, which then became quite a good marketing tactic that I didn't even realize. I continued to do that. Sometimes we still do it. Um, so that was a fun way to kind of get excitement for a new pattern coming out. And naming patterns I find very challenging. So it's kind of nice to have somebody else do that part for you. Um, and I don't think I sold a ton, but I think I sold a couple and I was like, wow, like some people want this. And then I designed a hat for my father-in-law for Christmas. And I remember he, he's really sensitive to wool. So I picked out a yarn that was a wool alpaca blend because I thought, well, the alpaca will be softer for him. And I still saw that pattern all the time. Um, so it did. And again, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a ton, but I was like, oh my gosh, people are buying these patterns. Um, so it was enough definitely to feel like I could go buy a couple skeins of yarn and keep trying. <laughs> 
take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Shack Spindle Company. My name is Sienna Bosch, and I am the content developer and education specialist at Shack Spindle Company. So I do a lot of the things with our online textile school. Um, so that's kind of the main part of my job. Great. And tell me a little bit about the textile school. So we offer a lot of different variety of classes. We have online classes as well as live online classes and in-person classes. So we kind of have a broad variety and we do a lot of different things for different types of learners. So what we really like to focus on is allowing for success of the students that take our classes. With each class, with each of our online classes specifically, we have video content that is pre-recorded, and then we have written instructions and as well as diagrams to really help students succeed in whatever they are interested in learning. So we have a variety of different classes in a lot of different textile art programs. So we do, we're just about to release a macrame class. So that's one of our big ones coming up, a beginning macrame. We also have a beginning spinning class. Um, some of our other recent things are learning to do pickup on rigid heddle looms. We also have inlay on floor looms. We have kind of a really broad variety of different textile projects. And each class has a project that really allows for students to learn a lot about the process and then understand the new technique, and then also make a finished piece for the end to show off all those new skills that they learned. This so. sounds like a fabulous resource. I know our listeners would love to check it out. So tell us where they can go. And I understand you have a special offer as well. Yeah. So we can. you can go to textileschool.shackspindle.com. And that's where all of our courses are. You can find both the online, live online, and in-person classes there. And the special coupon code for the listeners of this podcast is CIA2022, and that gets you 10% off of any of our classes through the end of December. Thank you so much, Sienna. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Shaq Spindle Company. And now back to my conversation with Andrea. Right, exactly. And so um, I know you were saying you you wanted to have kind of a one income family and have the other spouse take care of your children so so that you didn't have to just work for daycare. And I think yeah. that's pretty pretty relatable to a lot of people. And so yeah. um and, and you do have that now. So I just wonder how how you got there because I think there's a lot of people who would say, Well, I would love to to do that, but what is the road to having two patterns on Ravelry to actually being able to support a family um, yeah. with with just knitting, you know, that, yeah. that seems like such a huge, huge task. Leap. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really, I never thought it was something that would be possible. Um, I do think a couple things that seem to line up well for me is, you know, when I first, I set goals for myself. And I began with, okay, I'm always going to have one of my own designs on my needles. And at the time, I definitely thought I'll still keep knitting like I always have, but I'll just have one be my own pattern. And I immediately just started designing my own pattern. It was I gave up on trying to knit other people's patterns because I just realized all my excitement was in creating my own. Um, so, and that was all kind of just a natural evolution. Uh, but one of those early goals was once I realized how much I just wanted to knit my own stuff was kind of giving myself a schedule. So that original goal was to publish one pattern a month. And that 
again, it never felt stressful or overwhelming or like too much. I think having a realistic timeline, especially with anything creative, I think if you try to do too much, that burnout is no joke. Um, so when I say one pattern a month, if I was talking to somebody else trying to become a knitwear designer, I would definitely give the advice that that number should be what really truly works for you. And that might be six patterns a year. That might be three. That might be 24. You might be able to do a lot more. Um, But that seemed to be really a nice, it always kept my forward momentum going with my own excitement around publishing those patterns. And it just seemed to keep, give me a consistency that I think people who were then starting to get into my patterns I think consistency is key, even with like posting on social media, the newsletter, as I learned from you, is that that consistency seems to be a big part of it, too. So I think no matter what kind of schedule you set for yourself, trying to remain consistent with that, because I think customers like to rely on that. And, you know, you had to become your own boss because you said you've been working at various jobs since you were a young teenager and a lot of your identity and, and, you know, social time was sort of wrapped up in work. Well, Mm -hmm. when you're home being a knitwear designer on the computer, it's not the same thing. And so it sounds to me like those rules sort of um, set up a structure a little bit more similar to maybe what a boss would set for an employee, which is to say, you need to be here at this time. You need to accomplish these tasks by this date. Um, and, you know, there's probably some flexibility within there, but really that's the way this job is going to work. And so setting that up for yourself uh, and then sticking to it is a whole nother ball game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and again, I think that's why it's important in the beginning to try and set up realistic goals. You know, like I never had to struggle to do that one pattern a month. It felt really, really natural and it didn't overwhelm me, especially as a, you know, I had within the first three years of having my business, I had two kids. So, and I was still the stay at home at that time. So I had a two-year-old and an infant and I was running my business. Um, so I, you know, I will say, I think I have a very strong work ethic and I think, you know, I always tended to become a manager no matter where I worked. I tend to move up in that chain. So I do think if you want to own your own business, having that self-motivation is really, really key. And if you maybe aren't super self-driven, do it like doing exactly what you just said of like, like talking to yourself as though, you know, it's the boss saying, you know, like creating a schedule for yourself. Because I will say while I was still the stay at home while doing the business, it's amazing how much you can squeeze in in a couple hours. I know. But when you, act, you know, it's like, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's the gift of children. I always say like, there's the only thing that's sort of similar in my mind is like it traveling. Like if you were in Rome, you know, yeah. for just four days, you wouldn't probably sleep late. You'd be like, no, wake up early, yeah. get to the bakery, go to the museum, go see all these sites, you know, go out to dinner, go see this, whatever, all, you know, cause you only have four days. And yeah. I think that it's very similar when you have children. It's like you had, I, mean, I used to be a teacher and I'd have the whole summer off and would get nothing done. Right. Once you have children, you're like, I have 20 minutes yeah. and in 20 minutes, I'm going to do a day's worth of work. So. Yes, it is. It's just like you maximize all that time. And I think I did the same thing. Like when I had a my day job, if I want, I still knit pretty, quite a bit. And it's because it's like you, all those minutes 
add up and they're so precious and you want to utilize them. Where once my husband began staying home, I floundered for a little bit of like, okay, I'm not used to having a big window of time to work. So now how do I organize this? So I'm still maximizing my time. And I still feel like I have to kind of like figure that out. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about that transition. Um, So your husband was working a day job when you first Mm -hmm. started. Um, You were doing this as basically a kind of a hobby to pay for more yarn. Um, Mm -hmm. And you had the two kids. And then how did you both come to the realization that this could be the income stream and that he could actually join you? And I know he takes your photos, which are Mm -hmm. stunning. And he's clearly very talented at photography, I'm sure, among other things as well. But how did you guys together come to this realization? And maybe I'm sure there were some steps that you had to take to plan yeah. to make it happen. It didn't just happen, or maybe it did when like one day, but yeah, absolutely. So we realized um I had a couple patterns that started doing very well. And we started noticing, like, okay, the the income I'm making for this we just never expected. So we started thinking like, man, if I could work more, could this business grow more? And so we talked about it quite a bit. It was a very, very scary leap, especially because when you own your own business, you don't have health insurance. You have to buy your health insurance. It's just a whole new realm of things. So we actually found that in our town at the community college, they had free business advisors. And so we went and we talked to a business advisor and just said, like, we really don't know what my business needs to be making for us to be financially stable if Peter left his job. So that was really, really helpful. And I have a feeling, I bet most people, if they live in a town with a university, I bet they might have some kind of resource like that. So that was really helpful. And what was interesting was how much they discouraged Peter leaving his job because they were like, Peter actually worked at the local university and his benefits were so good that they were like, him keeping his job is worth it just for his benefits. So we ended up not doing it for a number of years because we just kept looking at it and they were like, yeah, it's still not quite, you know, they were like, we still would recommend it. So it took us probably like three years for us to finally make the leap where it got to a point where I was like, I cannot keep doing this part-time because it's too much work for me to fit in to this like nighttime block after the kids go to bed and the two hour block during the nap when now one kid's dropping the nap. (laughs) Yeah. That's the worst. Once (laughs) they drop the nap, you're like, no, no. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I was like, I was supposed to write a pattern during that hour. (laughs) you know, I think you're being frustrated with your kids, which you right, don't, want, which you you don't want to do. Right. No, no, no. So finally it was just, we were like, okay, my business is doing well enough that we can afford health insurance, especially again with young kids. It's like, you want to make sure you have all your ducks lined up, all your ducks in a row. So we, and again, we also got help. So we had help from that business advisor. And then also from our tax person, as we started kind of talking to them, because We also both came from backgrounds of not being super financially stable necessarily our whole lives and through our childhood and everything. So we just really wanted to make sure, okay, are we, are we thinking about this the right way? We don't really know, you know, I think that's really the hard information to find out there. It It is really confusing. Everybody's situation is really different. Everybody's family is different. Everybody's health is different. I mean, there's so many factors 
uh, where you live and the cost of living where you live varies wildly and you could move somewhere else and it could change. So there's so many things to to keep in mind. So it sounds like you really got some good advice, which is smart from, from different, from different sectors to to figure it out. And so, yeah. yeah. And so now Peter is home with your children who are still Mm -hmm. fairly young, right? They're like elementary. Yeah. Yeah. Elementary age kids. Um, And that gave you the time to really focus. And you had said um, that there were a few patterns that had really taken off and like Mm -hmm. proved the concept that this could be something. So can you talk a little bit about like the most successful ones in there? And yeah, because that must've been kind of a turning point when you're like, wow, this one though is like really. Yes. It was. And I think that is what helped us kind of make that final leap too of having him come home. So one was find your fade, which is a shawl. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, I think, you know, it's funny because when I designed it, I was like, I don't know if anyone's even going to like this. <laughs> you know, And so I actually designed that after my son was born and I was you know, again, I had an infant and a two-year-old and was running this business and I was very depleted. And I was like, I'm just going to knit something that I want to knit that just makes me feel so good and excited. And so I just cast on. And then I didn't even publish it for like a number of months after I finished it. I just was wearing it a lot. And so I finally published it and it was just like, what is happening? I mean, it just, you know, if you're familiar with Ravelry, there's like a top 10 and it just shows like the patterns that are being most viewed on any at any given moment. And that pattern just hovered there for like over a year. Yeah. I mean, and just, I remember, I mean, it got like mainstream media attention. I don't know if it was on the it cut did. or it somewhere. Was on the cut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that article. And, you know, what do you think it was about Find Your Fade that made it take off that way? I think. I think I know exactly why. I think that a lot of us crafters, especially if we go to like a in a big event like Vogue Knitting Live or Stitches West or any, you know, now it's been a few years since I feel like any of us have gone to anything. But or maybe you're just going to your local yarn shop and you buy like that one skein of really pretty special yarn, but you only buy one. And so after a while, for any of us out there who have a stash, you now have all of these single skeins of yarn and you're like, yeah. I don't know what to do with these. Cause I only bought one because they, a lot of times they're like indie dyed. They're a little bit pricey. Yeah. And so you just have this collection of yarn that's just sitting there gathering dust. And that is actually one of the things that led me to do it is I had started, I was so drawn to all of this indie dyed yarn with the speckles. Like I just, it, again, it just filled me with joy. And so I ended up using seven different colors in that shawl. And the whole goal was how can I move from one color to the next and basically just making up my own gradient, you know, and just finding a way to blend from one yarn to the other. And so I think when that shawl came out, it gave so many knitters a way to use this stash they had collected. And I think that it was so fun to move from color to color that even though it's a really large shawl, people were finishing it because it was so exciting to keep going in to watch the colors change. So I just think it hit that like perfect little serendipitous, joyful making thing. And it, was there another uh, pattern besides find your fade that also got that kind of traction? Yeah, there's been a couple more, but the next one that I actually released, I think just a couple months after find your fade, I was really nervous. Cause I was like, Oh, this is just a gray sweater. <laughs> 
And I don't know if any find your fate did so well. Like, oh, I don't know if anyone's going to be interested in this just gray sweater. And that's the weekender. And it's a boxy style drop shoulder sweater. I call it my fancy sweatshirt because you could absolutely wear it to your day job, but it's very comfortable. And that one, again, I really was uncertain of how it would do. And it remained, I think it's actually surpassed find your fade now because so many people have knit it or knit multiple because it's very comfortable. It looks great on a lot of different body shapes. Um, so that one was my other, just like, okay, kind of worked out really well. And do you feel like it's possible to make a living like this, like a real living that supports a family? Mm -hmm. And obviously there's a lot of variables that go into that, of course, but um, in general, by just designing patterns that you self-publish, or do you feel like it's important to add other streams here? I know you traveled prior to the pandemic, Mm -hmm. you traveled quite a bit to teach and different, you know, shops and different shows and um, different gatherings of different sorts for knitters. Um, is that, is it, how important is it to do that? How important is it to also write books or just mm-hmm. to bring in other streams? Or is it possible, do you think, to just do it, um, you know, by self-publishing patterns and Ravelry? I think that's such a great question. Um, I have thought a lot about that because, again, I often think about like, why, what was this perfect storm that created the success that I've been able to support my family this way? I mean, my extended family still can't believe it. They're like, you knit? (laughs) (laughs) This works? You You do what now? Yeah, they just are like, what? People still knit? Um, So I do think, so I did start teaching fairly early on. There was a yarn shop that was really supportive of my work. And they were like, why don't you come out and teach a class? Which I will say that first one was really terrifying. Um, So that I just kind of started doing it. There wasn't a ton of forethought on should I also like diversify and do these other things? I just kind of fell into that part. But if I reflect on it, I do think that was really helpful for getting my name out there. So getting that exposure, which I think is the hardest thing of any artistic job is getting exposure, especially now that Instagram's gotten a lot trickier with algorithms. I think so many of us in the arts industries used Instagram as a great way to market our work. And now, I mean, I have a large following and only maybe 10% of my followers ever see a post. Yeah, And so I think that and also publishing, I do think that at the end of the day, from my own experience, I think that independent knitwear designers are better off self-publishing their work financially speaking. But the way I looked at publishing and magazines and doing things like that, I almost looked at it as my marketing budget. Because again, just having your name, the more people are exposed to your name, you're going to reach different demographics that you weren't reaching before. So I do think that teaching and publishing with some outside companies was really smart. I think in hindsight, one tip I would maybe give if somebody was getting into those things is that all contracts are negotiable because I just didn't know that and very much was like, okay. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of things that, you know, related to that. One is, you know, besides getting your name out there, or maybe this helps to get your name out there, is that publishing and teaching give you some legitimacy, which is to say these other established names, whether they're mm-hmm. magazines, books, venues, 
have trusted in me, have hired me, have paid me to Mm -hmm. create for them, which means that they've vetted me in some way. And therefore you don't need to vet me as well. Cause you know, if they hired her or whatever gave mm-hmm. her a contract, then yeah. they must see something. And so she must be legit. 100%. So that's, I mean, a key piece of it is just the lending their name to your, <laughs> your yeah. business um, and vice versa now too, of course. But um, so that that's one piece of it and all contracts are negotiable. I, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that, when you're first starting out, you, it's very easy to fall into this feeling of being flattered that you were even asked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fear that you'll lose it if you push back. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, those two feelings can sometimes overwhelm the, you know, ability to actually read the contract carefully and come back mm-hmm. with, um, with you know, because the, the person or the company issuing the contract it is made to protect them. That's what the contract is. It is to protect them. And what about you? <laughs> you know, yes. you're equally as important in that equation. You're the talent. Right, right. Their thing wouldn't exist without the talent of others. Correct. And so, and, and which just reminds me as well, I think trying to value your work from the beginning, you know, like that's something I see a lot of is a lot of freebies or constant sales on things. And I have found throughout my own experiences that I think that if we undervalue our work by constantly underpricing or always like sale after sale after sale after sale, I think that it begins to send the message that there's maybe something wrong with our work. You know, like people do find, I think, believing that you have value and that the work you're creating has value, which sometimes for a lot of us, who are trying to make it in like a craft industry where sometimes people give us the feeling that we're not valued in that way. And so I think believing that you have value and charging appropriately helps other people believe in your value, if that makes sense. You know, so I think, I think even when you're brand new, that doesn't mean if you've gone through the steps to write a really great pattern, trusting that you should charge what it's worth. Just because it's new doesn't mean that you shouldn't charge what somebody who's been doing it longer has been charging. And how did you build community? I know that you do knit alongs, you have um, a, you know, the sort of Rhinebeck sweater thing (laughs) going on. Can you talk a little bit about um, just building community around your brand and, and the ways that you've done that and the impact that that's had? Yeah, I... That's a really interesting question because I don't know that I ever did any of it super consciously. I felt like I've, I've fallen into things. Um, I am very, very shy and very introverted. So the community building aspect can sometimes be tricky for me because my tendency is to want to just, you know, that's why I was a great baker. I loved those 4 a.m. shifts where it was just quiet and I was on my own. But at the same time, I did find such excitement in connecting with people who are passionate about the same things I was passionate about. So um, Instagram, again, was really helpful because I think that as crafters, we love looking at pictures of people's crafts. So I think that was a great place to start getting to know people. I also participate, you know, I was, I was in the knitting community for a long time before I began designing. So I had started making friends 
during other people's knit alongs where we were like, we would end up chatting during their knit along and then we became Instagram friends and then we became real life friends. And so I think that that was already kind of there for me. I think Ravelry was really helpful in building that community. Um, But yeah, I think knit alongs are a great way to do it because it's really exciting. Um, The Rhinebeck sweater that's one of those ones that just kind of happened. So my friends who I do that with is magpie fibers and spin cycle yarns. And they, I think this was either our, this is either our fifth or our sixth year. So about five years ago, they both happened to be releasing a new yarn at the same time. And both had been like, Hey, do you want to do a design? And I, again, busy mom trying to do all the things. It's like, how about I do a design with both yarns? And then I think we were all just chatting. It was that time of year that we were like, what if we released it as a Rhinebeck sweater? And so we just did it. We had no idea if it would do well or if anybody would join. And we did that little meetup. And it was just so fun that during Rhinebeck of that year, we were like, should we do this again? Like, that was so fun. It brings everybody together in real life, in person, around something that they've been doing online and enjoying for months. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, and it is, and it's just, I think that there's actually a lot of shy introverted crafters out there and having this common thread to be able to connect with people on make socializing easier. So I think it's this kind of beautiful way for those of us who maybe sometimes find it a little more challenging to socialize. It kind of brings us together in a way that feels really exciting. And I have two other knit alongs now that I do her three other knit alongs. Again, I didn't mean to do these. I did like a hat knit along challenge because I wanted to see if I could get more people to learn brioche. And I knit a brioche hat that I hoped would be really helpful for beginners that I did a bunch of video tutorials for. And I just was like, let's see if we can all knit this in four days. And now that's been going. We just had again our fifth or sixth knit along and I do another one um in November every year for socks and now it's become traditions for the people who participate which just like makes me feel so happy to see that this has become something that other people look forward to every year and it's a really special way to get together and even those of us who never meet in person it's virtual how nice it is to still feel like you've got the people you know and you come do this thing together every year And how important, I mean, photography, I think is incredibly important. And your husband, Peter takes these photos and you're the model most of the time, not always. I mean, there's times when you have other models, but you're often the model. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, um, about how that works. Like in real life, you know, you have your two children who are in early elementary school, you have this new design, it's time to be photographed. And, you know, what was his learning curve like to get this, you know, because photographing knitwear, it's, it's a certain type of skill, yeah. you need to show be able to, to show certain aspects of, of the piece and things like that. Absolutely. So he is one of those who and he, he comes from a family of everyone's just magically so artistic in all the ways. Um, so he was very good with the camera long before my business started. But so I mean, when we when I my first few patterns, those are cell phone pictures where I was in my backyard, I was like, can you take a picture of me quick? Uh, but throughout the years, you know, I think within a, the first year, we bought like a nice camera. Um, and he's just definitely got an eye for it. I do often have to be like stitch definition, stitch definition. <laughs> the sky's pretty, but we need stitch definition. Um, but I think that was actually part of the success as well, is that he was so good at capturing 
the feeling we want to feel in knitwear, you know, like the cozy aspect and um, really just beautiful photography. So I think that was really helpful. And you, live, and you live in Maine. Um, we live in Maine, yeah. Which has that, a lot of that sort of cozy autumnal <laughs> and wintry feeling to it. It's been really nice to have new landscapes to go to because where we lived in Michigan, which we've lived here now for three and a half years. So where we lived in Michigan was a little trickier. We lived in a more urban setting. Um, and with kids, it's really, so I am usually the model in all the photos, basically, because we usually have about 15 minutes for a photo shoot. Right. That's, that's what I'm like, figuring. I'm like, she's like out yeah. on her porch and she's yes. just like, go, like take a yes. picture. That is 100% what it is. Sometimes we do funny behind the scenes shots because it's just chaos. You know? <laughs> like in these, I always look like I'm looking out at the horizon and it looks serene. And it's like really in the background, I've got kids going crazy and <laughs> trying to like give them a snack. So they'll just sit there for a minute. I mean, one of our photo shoots last fall my son we were on the beach and he had gone into where the sand was a little sinky and so there's a picture of him like oh <laughs> in the back child <laughs> sinks in sand while parents yes. do darn like, photo and then my, yeah. my daughter running over and holding on to him <laughs> and I mean we were just like oh people only knew that we literally take seriously 15 to 20 minutes per photo shoot right. and take pictures as fast as we can while simultaneously chasing our children. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good to know. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about your newsletter. So you had said, you know, Instagram, you have a large following on Instagram, you use mm-hmm. Instagram or, or did for a long time to uh, market your business. And then it's now much less effective than it, it once was. Mm-hmm. And you sent out a beautiful newsletter, which I've subscribed to for years and always love. Thank and you. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of what you put in it or how you think about your newsletter. Yeah. So I took your newsletter class, which I highly recommend and have told everyone I know about it, like from my family members who have nothing to do with the craft industry to all of my industry friends. Uh, I basically had a good friend, Andrea Rangel, who took your class. And during one of our, one time when we were teaching, she sold us on the need for a newsletter. And I was very hesitant, honestly, just because I was like, I don't have time. I can't add another thing. And at that time, Instagram was working pretty well as my marketing. And then I remember watching your class. And I believe in it, you talk about the stability of some of these other platforms. And that hit home for me really hard of like, if Instagram was gone tomorrow, that is all of my marketing. And I now have no way to reach my customers. And so in my newsletter, I basically very much take your advice. I try to write them as a personal email to each person. Um, And what I found pretty quickly was what a wonderful way it was to stay in touch with customers. I love your tips to do the PS, the postscript and to ask a question. And it's just so heartwarming to be able to engage with other knitters in this way. And I've heard personal stories from them now. I mean, it's just been really beautiful. Um, I also end everyone again with your tip of doing the thought you might like section. And I have had subscribers who say like, I continue to subscribe to your newsletter just for that. I love it so much. I agree with them because I don't actually knit. And so I don't actually need any of the other content that's in this (laughs) newsletter. 
but there's always three links at the bottom. And I'm just like, it's like Pavlov. I'm just like, I will open this because I know yeah. there's three links at the bottom and I need to go. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's like been trained. Like I see it and I'm like, click, got to open it, you know? So it, that's super effective. It's, and it's so fun. I mean, it's such a nice way to also share things outside of knitting, you know, like I love to share cookbooks or recipes and things like that. Um, and again, I'll say for anybody who is really listening because they're trying to figure out their own business stuff. I decided to do some experiments a couple years ago where I started doing different discount codes for my subscribers and then for my like Instagram followers, because I was just curious, like how effective is this? And I realized over this course of a year, probably 95% of my sales came from my newsletter. Absolutely. I mean, You're like, the code on Instagram barely touched it. Absolutely. If you want to make money, you send out a newsletter and you will make money. That's just the way yes. it is. It's like, yes. I mean, it feels kind of harsh to say that. And yet it really is true. I mean, yeah. so. I think it's one of the best things I was actually just talking to my best friend this morning. I was like, you know, I think one of the best things I did was getting ahead of the game with the newsletter before Instagram started changing all these algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. Because it really, it makes me feel more secure in my business. I think there's a lot of scaries that come along with having an artistic business and for having your own business. Um, so having, knowing that I have this consistent space where I can share with my customers has been huge. It helps you to be less upset when Instagram continually changes and yeah. pulls the rug out under you. It's like, you don't have such a personal emotional investment in what yeah. their decision-making is, which is really nice to get that distance. Um, yeah. So I know you are, we're returning to in-person events. You've got a really beautiful international event that's sold out. But if you can tell us just a little bit about sort of um, before we get to your recommendations, like what motivated you to to create, is this something new and, and to create something like this where you would be traveling with folks? Yeah, so earlier this year, I, I have missed during the pandemic, I used to travel once to twice a month for work um, pre-pandemic. And I would teach and just really loved it. There's something that is so different connecting with people in a classroom at smaller numbers, I usually have 12 to 14 people in my classes and just getting to connect with knitters in that way, especially when so much of my business is kind of done alone up in my studio. That's just really special. So I decided earlier this year, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I think I'm going to try to start scheduling some teaching. I feel like we're stable enough where we're, I can hopefully not have to cancel my travel. And so I had two really good friends who actually came up with the idea for the retreat. Um, and it's in Tulum, Mexico. And they were like, we want to have what would be our ideal vacation, <laughs> which is going to this really, really lovely spot in Tulum with yoga and sound baths and knitting. So um, that is the one that I am doing it in April, I believe. And that one did sell out pretty quickly. There might be a wait list. Um, but I am hoping I have a few more that are booked through June of next year. So those will kind of slowly start to come out and I'll be going to different places around the U S and just starting to teach again. So I'm hoping that that will be able to continue. Can I ask about your tattoos? You have a lot of beautiful oh, yeah. tattoos, um, on your hands. I know on your, the top part of your chest as well. Yeah. And, um, and I've always wondered about them and, and what, you know, what, what, what you like about having tattoos. Yeah, you know, I think it goes right back to being very shy and introverted. I was very socially anxious, especially as a teenager. 
And when I started getting tattoos, I realized it was a way that I could start to tell people about myself without ever having to open my mouth. And so with every tattoo I get, I feel a little bit more like me. So they've, it's just been like coming into my own. So my hands, which you've seen me waving around this whole time, I have, they're both human hearts. So one's made out of leaves and branches and the other is made out of knits and pearl stitches. And then my knuckles are actually the seasons in plant, plant form. So there's like a daisy and a tree and fall leaves and a pine cone and um, all different kinds of stuff. <laughs> That's cool. I've never heard tattoos. I'm also very shy and introverted and I don't have any tattoos, but I've never heard tattoos described that way. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I would love to get to your recommendations. Um, you have a couple of things that you're um, enjoying right now. And one of them mm-hmm. is spinning and weaving classes on the school of sweet Georgia. Um, and, and so tell us a little bit about what you like about those. So I started taking those. It might have even been during early pandemic when we were home a lot more. I had learned to spin right after moving to Maine. Um, I'd actually learned how to spin years and years ago, but it didn't, I didn't really take off with it. So I have a friend here who owns a shop and she had a spinning class. And I was like, I have no time for another hobby, but I'm just going to go learn and it'll be fun. And of course, by the end of it, I was like, now I need a spinning wheel. (laughs) And it has been such a beautiful, like meditative practice. And so I don't even know how I found School of Sweet Georgia, but I started taking their spinning classes and they really propelled me forward. It was so helpful and it got me so excited about the yarn I was spinning. And I just this summer learned how to weave, which is a whole whole nother thing. I mean, weaving, I don't even understand how somebody figured it out. It's amazing. There's so much to learn. And it's one of those things that I need to kind of see visually. So I love that they have weaving classes too. So whenever that's what I do, instead of watching like Netflix, I watch crafting classes. <laughs> yeah. And we've had Felicia on the podcast. If you yeah. want to hear more about that. And um, you also like the wraps per inch tool from Katrinkles and Katie's one of our members too. Oh, yay. Yeah, that little tool has become the main one I find helpful while spinning. I just keep it hanging on my wheel and I use it to check my thickness of my singles so that I'm staying consistent. And it has been a game changer for me. So I love that. I love all of her mini tools are amazing. They're amazing. I agree. Yeah. 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 Um, And then finally, we know you love to cook. You wanted to recommend Healthy in a Hurry Cookbook by Danielle Walker. Is this one gluten free? It is. It's gluten-free and grain-free. So I have Hashimoto's and I'm also celiac. And I have found again through my newsletter that there are a lot of us out there with autoimmune disorders trying to deal with different health issues. And so I had to pretty drastically change my diet and her cookbooks have been my go-to and this is her newest one. And I think it's my favorite one yet. Everything we made has been a big hit. So All right. That's a good recommendation. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you. It was so great talking to you. Thanks for having me, Abby. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Shack Spindle Company. Shack Spindle Company is committed to supporting their dealers and their educational programs. Explore the resources available on their website and contact them about how you can add spinning and weaving to your product mix. Learn more at shackspindle.com. When you're there, be sure to sign up for their newsletter. 
Thank you so much, Shack Spindle Company. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.